Welcome to our podcast series. I'm Hazel Stutely, C2 Founder and Program Director. C2 is based on a very simple concept that we discovered back in the 90s, which works as well today as it did back then. We simply bring together the people who work in an area, typically police, health and housing frontline workers, with those people who live there to work together as equals, forming a mutually problem-solving, resident-led partnership with just one goal, to make their community a great place in which to live and work. These partnerships are not only powerful, but they stand the test of time because they are self-renewing, with many still going strong into their second operational decade. In this series, we've captured the inspirational voices of residents and providers separately and together as they tell their stories of how the C2 seven-step pathway to partnerships not only worked for them and their communities, but carries on working with amazing and transformative results. In this episode, you'll be hearing from Robin Jury and Katrina Wyatt. Robin is Senior Lecturer in Political Theory at the University of Exeter. He's also the Deputy Director for Engaged Research at the Wellcome Centre for Cultures and Environments of Health. Katrina is a Professor of Relationship Health at the Exeter Medical School. It's probably best to go all the way back to the Complexity and Primary Care Group, because that's where we first met Hazel. Do you remember? Yes, so about 17 years ago i was working uh had just started in the in the medical school and was hearing some gps talk about a theory complexity theory that they were using to inform their practice and one of those gps jonathan stead said well you know i heard this presentation from this amazing health visitor who led this transformation of a social housing estate and I think complexity theory could help explain um, what's happened and why it happened and so they introduced us to Hazel and we decided that we wanted to do some research to understand how Hazel created the condition in Falmouth to allow the transformation of the Beacon estate but also then to see if we could apply it to other research programs where the stated aim was transformation, be it in regeneration or in workforce development or in modernising how services were delivered in the NHS. So, I mean, our thinking was really that uh, most interventions um, that are designed in the, in the health sector are pretty much designed like your guidebook for how to put a piece of IKEA furniture together. There's a fairly straightforward set of rules, basically, which everyone has to stick to, and that you, you, you can pretty much predict or you're going to try and predict what it looks like at the end if it works. But what complexity theory tells us is that actually in social systems, that's not actually how things work. And really, the how people behave is an effect of the relations that they have with other people around them. And we say that the behaviours 
of of people, but in particular, uh, the behaviour of the the community together is is emergent. It's it's an effect of these um, these new relations. So the, we thought that the focus of Hazel's work and what we wanted to try and find out from our research was really that she basically gone about changing the nature of the relations within the Beacon estate, both the relations amongst the residents, but possibly even more importantly, the relations between the residents and the service providers. And she started just by getting people around the table and and getting them to listen to the real-life problems that people were enduring on the Beacon Estate, rather than, uh, in effect, service providers telling residents what their problems are and then telling them how they can fix them. Um, So that was making service provision into a much more responsive and, and much more partnership way of working. And what really was transformative, we found, is that very quickly the residents began to realize that the service providers could offer solutions to problems which really made a difference for them and they began to trust this new way of working and and it became the norm on the estate that these partnership solutions would be the normal way of working and so the partnership itself the beacon partnership became the kind of driver for all the change in the estate so this process lent itself very well to this explanation by complexity theory and so for us the next phase really was to test whether or not our initial intuitions about that really had any grounding in experience so could we actually design something like a program along the lines of complexity theory and using Hazel's experience, which we could use in, in other estates, because one of the real challenges is that it's it's reasonably easy to get things to happen in one place, but getting them to happen then in another place, and another place, and another place, nobody's been able to achieve that. So Katrina, you did some prospective work, didn't you, in Redruth? Yes, so Red Roof was one of the areas which had a large amount of VU funding under a program called Objective One. And one of the first things that Hazel did was take the three residents associations that were working in Red Roof to the Beacon Estate to sort of see, create a space of possibilities, to see what a partnership could do and, and, and how it worked and, and what it looked like. Then for the next two and a half years, we worked in Red Roof looking at the enablers and barriers to partnership between residents and service providers forming. And for the first year and a half, the partnership met, but it didn't really have a lot of work to do. And then antisocial behaviour became a real issue on one of the areas in Red Roof. And a new policeman, Mark Griffin, came in and all of a sudden the partnership had a purpose and had some work and it took off from there. But looking across the sort of five research projects that we were all involved in, we were then able to identify the patterns of how these partnerships can form, which is what led to to connecting communities. So then Hazel and I, I remember this would be in about 2003, Hazel and I locked ourselves into basement classroom in Camborne College and basically didn't let ourselves out until we had 
piece together all the various elements from Hazel's own lived experience of delivering this work at the front line, the research that Katrina had done on the work in, in Redruth and also in Falmouth, and my own kind of theoretical perspective on complexity. And we had post-its all over the room, and we had diagrams and maps. And, and at the end of basically of two days, we designed C2 as the learning program. And we were very fortunate in that we were approached by Sergeant Dave Ainsley, who was the lead of the neighborhood beat police team in Camborne and had been alerted to our work by Mark Griffin in Redruth. And he had recognized that he was faced by a real big challenge in Camborne, which was that the kids were really generating so much antisocial behavior and so many problems for the police and for the, the local residents. And, and Dave, bless him, he, he told us how many of them he'd arrested and how often. And he said, but it's not making any difference and I don't know what to do. So he brought his team along to the very first incarnation of the C2 program. And it was really, I think for all of us, just a transformational experience. And uh, we realized that something was working when Dave stood up and said on behalf of his team, but really most of all on behalf of himself, that he realized that just doing more of the same wasn't going to make a difference. And it was absolutely essential that he tried to do something differently. And that really started with him finding out from the young people on the estate just what it was like to live in Camborne, but also what they might want, because really what transpired was that, no surprises, they had nothing to do, their lives felt hopeless, they didn't feel like they had any any opportunities, and it's no surprise that they tried to blot it out with alcohol and with drugs and, and everything else, and of course all the petty violence that follows from that. And um, based on experiences we'd had with other communities that we'd worked with or knew of, Dave tried out various ideas with them, including a skateboard park and playing football, but really none of those particularly worked. So he went back to the young people and said, you know, why is it not working? And, and essentially they told him, because that's not what we want to do. What we want to do is street dance. We want to learn how to dance. That's the thing that really kind of had caught their spirit. So this was happening and, and Dave, through an extraordinary sort of set of circumstances, was able to come with a, a dancer who, who was the choreographer for Madonna whenever she was in Britain. And they set up this, essentially Danny Price did dancing on street corners in the estates in Camborne to generate interest. And very quickly, there was so much enthusiasm for this. And the young people set up this regular dance workshop. But in a sense, although the dancing is fundamental to everything they've done, and they've been doing this dancing now for 15 years, and it's just an amazing thing that they've done. But what, what was really transformational was the, the relationship that the young people had with Dave, with his colleagues, with the neighborhood. It, it changed the fundamental nature of those relations because Dave was no longer arresting them. Dave was no longer a figure of authority who was there to tell them they were doing bad things. Dave had become somebody who was enabling them 
do what they wanted to do. And that was the first time for many of them that they'd had an experience of authority as as an enabling power rather than kind of negative power. And and that for us is really at the heart of what C2 is all about. It's about creating the spaces of possibility, like Katrina said, because that's what service providers can do, because they have that capacity, they have that power, they can make things happen. But what changes in C2 is that they're making things happen that, that residents, that local people want to happen, rather than making things happen because they think they know best. I think that's absolutely right, and, and particularly in, in public health. We're, we're really good at defining neighbourhoods, areas, populations in terms of problems. You know, there are high levels of smoking, low levels of physical activity, um, high rate of obesity. And then we come up with completely the wrong ways of trying to tackle these behaviours. But what C2 has taught me and what I try and take into every other aspect of the research that we do is that you actually have to start by understanding the problem as it's experienced by the people in that area or in that workplace or in that school. And people know what makes them ill and what they need to make them healthy and often it's so much easier to address than trying to get a whole neighbourhood to quit smoking and be more active. So I think um, for us, for the amount of learning that, that we in public health can take from a connecting community's approach to creating health is phenomenal because, as, as Robin said, if what we're doing is changing the nature and the quality of the relations to identify and respond to community issues, then these are sustainable ways of behaving. And so often in, in public health, we see things in terms of, of projects and, and yes, there is a flurry of activity around around a project and new behaviours. But then once the money runs out, these then have not become embedded, changed ways of, of working. So most public health interventions, if they do manage to change behaviours, there's very, very few examples of sustained behaviour change. Do you remember Grenville Chapel's line, Katrina, where mm. he said, we thought we were doing up houses, but actually we were saving people's lives. And that's really it. The health outcomes, the, the life-changing outcomes are the real outcomes of what C2 does. But there are so many different pathways to getting those outcomes. And each of these pathways will be specific to the local residents, the local community, mm. the local area. So street dancing worked for Camborne, but it yeah. might well not work in Stoke or it might well not work in on Onthank. And therefore, the, it's so important to do all the hard work early of actually finding out what it's like to live in this particular place, finding out what it is that people love about living in a place, but also what it is that people would like to change, the kinds of things that are, as you said, Katrina, making them feel ill. And and time and again, we find that it's often the smallest things and the easiest things to change that can really make a huge difference. And again, in complexity theory, 
terms, we say that that, that means that the relation between a cause or an input or, or something that you do and the outcome that follows is non-linear. So it means that you don't sort of put in X amount of input and get X amount of output back. A small thing can have a massive output. And, and that's when we get really excited. That's when Hazel talks mm-hmm. about the getting the hairs on the back of our neck standing on end because you can feel when a community is ready, when a community is primed, when when just the right intervention, just the right change can have a massive output. And in many ways, the hard work of C2 is in getting communities to that place where they're where they're ready to go. And and we call that creating a receptive context. And it's completely different to all the other ways of working that, that you would find in, in usual community development or public health interventions because it, it's always, for us, the work that's preparatory that's most important. The actual project work, once everything's ready to go, more or less any project's going to work and that's not really kind of the focus. The real important input is in getting getting the community, getting the, the neighborhood, getting the service providers ready and getting them into that sort of receptive context so that the intervention that's made can really flourish. Absolutely. And I think I think one of our challenges has always been when you're immersed in it and you, you can see it, it's just so clear and obvious that actually how do we evidence this as as a way of working, of a transformative engagement mm-hmm. approach such that it, public health practitioners, commissioners will look at it and think, gosh, no, I, I, you know, that's a way I could do things differently. So one of the pieces of, of work that we're doing with a community in Stoke, in Burslem, and a community in Dartmouth, we've worked with these two communities to identify a set of questions that we ask of individuals about the nature and the quality of the relations that they have in that area, who they speak to, who they'd go to for help, who they'd go to for a chat, the sorts of places that they go to to find their friends. And what we're hoping to do is to take this information and create what we're calling relational maps to actually try and look at the level of relations within an area before we've done some of the C2 work and then to look to see how and whether C2 has changed the nature of these relationships and the impact this has had on health and well-being at a neighbourhood level. And we're hoping that if we can show that the relationships have changed and how they've changed and that this improves health and well-being, that this will give us some of the evidence that we need to inform form policy and practice going forward. I mean, I think this is really important because our way of working is very much sort of hands-on and and face-to-face, as it were. So, so everything that C2 is about, everything that Hazel was about, is getting people talking to each other, getting people in the same room, sharing their stories, and and most of all, getting service providers to see for themselves what it's really like rather than making decisions from a desk in an office miles and miles away where of course you won't know what it's really like to live on an estate or what it's really like to face the kinds of problems that are are dominating people's lives. So this direct 
vis visceral visual experience is key and it's also key to how we've worked in respect of translating C2 from one neighborhood to another and, and we've invested a lot in the principle of what we call exchange visits, getting one community to come and visit another community and see how they've done things on their estate but also allowing the visited community to go and visit the new community and to share some of their learning but it, it also can inspire them to start again to do new work but the thing that really is most difficult for people is what I would call something like how they imagine uh, future possibilities because if you're if you're living on a state and the daily grind is the same problem day after day after day which is often what people tell us is is most difficult to cope with because they, they talk about not having hope uh, or feeling abandoned or, or just feeling that, that they can't make a difference what's really hard is to imagine how things could ever be different and, and visiting another estate is, is a real way in which you can see, gosh, well, they've done this. Um, we could do something like that. It wouldn't look like this. It might look like that. And, and so what we talk about in relation to that, we call that giving people a sense of possibilities. And that's really at the core of what we do is, is, and Hazel uses this language of turning problem spaces into possibility spaces. But obviously, to come back to what Katrina was saying, we can't, make or every commissioner or every service provider visit every estate to see for themselves what it's like. So we as academics have to find some way of translating that visual, that visceral lived experience which is so has such an impact and can be so transformative into data which has the potential to have a similar impact. Which is why we think that these these relational maps can, can tell the story in a very intuitive and a very direct way because this complexity stuff doesn't fit the paradigms by which local authorities, local commissioning groups would normally work because it doesn't have that linear causal story. We're talking not about a project that you do one thing and that causes another thing. We're talking about creating conditions that allow for relations to change and then with these changed relations we know something's going to happen we just don't know what it is but we can be fairly certain that it's transformative because we've seen it happen time and time and time again and and what these relational maps do is they, they capture these changes in the kind of relational fabric in different areas and at the same time we're collecting the qualitative data which can tell the stories about people's sense of their well-being changing. So we're really hopeful that this will give us a very robust way to complement the kinds of stories that we've, we've been able to tell about C2 over the last 15 years so that people can understand just how potentially transformative working in the C2 way can be. And I think what's really exciting is the way that the C2 partnerships are, are also getting involved in the research that we're doing in the university, in the Welcome Centre and, and, and in the medical school. Because so often programmes or interventions that we do to neighbourhoods actually widen health inequalities rather than address them and I think one of the reasons is as Robin said it's because we haven't understood the nature of the problem well enough so we're coming up with the wrong intervention but I think it's also because 
people from low-income communities, from certain populations, their voices don't get heard in developing research. So we end up developing programs that literally aren't fit for purpose and have no resonance with more of our underserved populations. So we've, you know, one of the things we've been doing, one of the projects has been looking at mental distress in very low-income communities. And it's been fantastic because two of the C2 partnerships have actually partnered us in the whole of the research process. So they've helped us get the questions right. They've helped us collect data from people to interview people to hold focus groups in very low-income communities. They've made short films about people's lived experience of mental distress and what they'd like from a healthcare consultation. So they've enabled us to collect the most rich, wonderful information which has allowed us to come up with a very concrete set of recommendations for general practice um, in supporting people with, with mental, mental distress. And they've also come up with a, a set of resources to support communities who are experiencing mental distress and to help get more from the healthcare consultation. So I think that there's just it's so exciting to see that the the partnerships um, get involved in, in the research and now support us to get our research to a better place. So I think this is a great new development from, from connecting communities. I, mean, I think it's so important that we recognise just how alienating the kind of language that is used in, in academia but also in, in the health sector can be when we talk about hard-to-reach groups. These groups aren't hard-to-reach for themselves. They're hard-to-reach for us because we don't reach out with real conviction and commitment. And in fact, the, the people who are really hard-to-reach in all of this are ourselves. We're, we're the ones who are locked up in our offices. We're the ones who are sitting on the top of ivory towers in campuses far, far away. We, we find time and again that the communities with which we work are often located in places where there's one road in and one road out. People talk about never being visited, that people never come and see for themselves what it's like to live in these places. It's no surprise that the research that is generated by middle-class researchers and middle-class institutions speaks to middle-class outcomes. It has little or no relevance to the very people that we should be doing the most work to try and change the conditions which are making them unhealthy, which are causing the kinds of problems that they're having to endure. Being able to, to conduct this research in this way, informed by and shaped by the real needs and the real insights and the real expertise of, of communities who are often thought of as being disadvantaged, is, is a, is, has real transformative potential for how we do work and, and is, is a real driving factor behind the work that we're trying to do in the Welcome Center. Um, and, and I think it's, it's really uh, a, a huge testament to the generosity of the people that we've had the privilege of working with, that they are willing to, to support us in doing this work. And, and, and I think in relation to that, something that's really important for us to emphasize is that in, in doing all of this, we are, we are not trying to make communities and residents responsible 
for solving their own problems. Um, this is all about enabling service providers to become active partners in working alongside residents to solve the problems that matter to residents. It's not about making residents themselves responsible for solving their own problems.